The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, March 8th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Big votes in states like Michigan and Mississippi today. But there was another big change over the weekend. In fact, it was the debut of the new SAT. So the Today Show, among other news outlets, decided to have their anchors and reporters take the new SAT. It did not go well. Here was the first question. A partially filled pool contains 600 gallons of water. A hose is turned on and water flows into the pool at the rate of eight gallons per minute. How many gallons of water will be in the pool after 70 minutes? Okay, 70 times eight plus the existing 600. So that's 1160, right? So one anchor guy blurts out. What are our choices? You just have to know. No, it's multiple choice. Five, sixty-eight. What? Whoever's closer gets five, sixty-eight. Is that right? (laughs) 568, the guy's insisting it's 568. The other anchors are demanding multiple choices for a rudimentary problem. 70 minutes. You pull the numbers out. 1160? Yes. 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 Thank you. Crap. Wow. Oh my God, though, I guess viewers will turn against her because she's such a smarty pants. All right, moving on to the next question. Question two, this is multiple choice and play along at home. If you'd like to, says Professor Jones. To see that. Choose the answer. All right, most- they're all talking over each other for the answers. I'll read the whole thing to you. Given these solutions, as well as the many health benefits of the food, the advantages of Greek yogurt outdo the potential drawbacks of its production. What's better than outdo? A, no change. B, defeat. C, outperform. D, outweigh. Which do you use? Outperform. Oh, you're supposed to put it on the well, last time we were Wait, supposed to just yell it out. The They're all screaming for outperform, but has every I think every just listener knows it's clearly outweigh. They don't like that answer. Not to be outdone on another segment of the Today Show, or possibly hour seven of the Today Show, or maybe we were just listening to the weekend version of the Today Show. The Today Show is like people who take out an OK Cupid profile and write, I like music. Really? You do? That just puts you in common with the other 95% of humanity. I think everything on TV is now technically the Today Show. But on some other segment of the Today Show, Kathy and Hoda took some SAT vocabulary tests. Which of the following would be described as Terpsichorean? Terpsichorean. Terpsichorean. Terpsichore. Not Terpsichorean. A muse of dance. I'll say criminal trial. I'm going to go with novel. Uh, All right. They got that one wrong. Sybaritic. Uh, Sybaritic. Is it pasta, a fancy hotel, siblings, or good night's sleep? I thought it had something to do with lesbianism. I'm I'm going with good night's sleep. So I'm going to go with pasta. (laughs) What was it? Sybaritic. I think of it as Athens versus Sparta. But yeah, it's soft. It's cushy. It's... A fancy hotel. They got that one wrong. So what have we learned other than to host the Today Show you needn't have done well on your SAT? I I was listening to Mark Marin's WTF podcast the other day, and there was just one line. He was interviewing Abby and Alana from Broad City. And he just tossed off the fact, oh, yeah, those stars of Vine, well, they got to be relatable. And if you're that talented, you're not going to bank on relatability. Whoa, that's kind of an 
interesting insight. I always ask myself about morning shows. Are they actually kind of dumb or do they just play dumb so as to be relatable? But I think that's it. Relatability, if that's the ultimate goal, there are a number of other things you can't be. All the things that Ayn Rand would say you should be. You can't be ostentatiously brilliant. You can be pretty, but you probably shouldn't be gorgeous. You can't be super fascinating. We're just going for relatable. And sadly enough, in America today, relatable, on a morning TV show at least, means really bad at answering simple questions. On the show today, I spiel about Aaron Andrews' $55 million award. But first, Detroit, as that state votes today, what happened to that great city? A great journalist David Marinus investigated. Detroit, a city founded by French fur trappers, bolstered by an Irish-Belgian industrialist with a hatred of Jews, but at the same time, one who offered a hand up to African-Americans. And if Harlem was the site of the black American Renaissance, then Detroit is where black artistic accomplishment gained full flower in the United States. And for decades, a mix of white ethnicities lived out the American dream. They were paid fairly for their hard labor. The biggest industry in the most industrialized country was power. Powered by Detroit like a 289 Windsor V8 engine. The high point of Detroit? Well, that's hard to say. But David Marinus has an idea. Maybe around 1962. Once in a great city, a Detroit story by Pulitzer Prize winner David Marinus. Hello, David. Thanks for doing the show. My pleasure. So maybe I said it wrong. Maybe you don't argue that 63 was Detroit's high point. Maybe it's more of an inflection point. But why that year? Well, for a couple of reasons. My first motivation was to write about what Detroit gave America, which is a tremendous amount. And as I started thinking about what that city gave this country and the world, really, uh, I centered around four central threads. The obvious one is cars, Motown, the, the music of my generation in many ways. And then you had uh, labor. Uh, Detroit was the center of the American labor movement with the United Auto Workers based in Detroit. And it really also played a very crucial role in the civil rights movement of the early 60s. Um, and so those were, became the central threads of the book. And then I was looking for a specific time period where I could go deeper into those four elements. And that's how I chose an 18-month period from the fall of 62 to the spring of 64, when when all of those were at their peak, Detroit was at its peak, and yet you could see the shadows of its own decline even then. Yeah, there's a, you quote an article that maybe got, you know, page three coverage in the in the free press, the free p- saying that a Wayne State researcher was predicting that the population would be declining, and he was totally correct. Yes. So the seeds were there, but as Martin Luther King is giving essentially his uh, debut performance of a version of the I Have a Dream speech, it's hard to see anything but a city on the upswing? Well, you know, so often in life we're blinded by the light. You know, in this case, to stretch that metaphor, you know, it was a shining star, but it was also a dying star. And But the people at that moment could not see it very clearly because all of those things were booming. Detroit was selling more cars than ever that year. The book starts with the 1962 Detroit Auto Show, which introduced the 63 cars which broke all sales records. They were also going back to bigger cars. There was a very brief little blip of romance with compact cars, but 
for the 63 models. They were putting in more chrome and aluminum than ever before. Uh, Motown was just starting to gain its its national recognition. Uh, so many things were happening in Detroit right then. It had a progressive mayor, a police chief who was trying to improve race relations. And they just could not see what was around the corner. That's the that's one of the really interesting things, because obviously you're a great writer of biographies about Bill Clinton and Clemente and uh, Vince Lombardi. But if anything, this book rebuts the great man of history, because there were some pretty great men in Detroit. There was Barry Gordy and Lee Iacocca. And I think George Romney was a pretty good governor. And it would mm-hmm. seem that the best intentions of very skilled people people uh, sometimes aren't enough to overcome chance, circumstance, demographics, that sort of thing. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I don't necessarily believe in the great man theory. I believe there are such things as as very great human beings, although they all have flaws. There's no space. Um, But in this case, uh, you know, a lot of it was beyond Detroit's control, and some of it wasn't. And that combination made Detroit sort of the exaggeration of what was going on in so many cities uh, in America where they were headed toward decline for a lot of reasons. You know, white flight, the, the, the American dilemma of race, Detroit uh, compounded by the fact that it was a one-company town, essentially, relying too much on automobiles, and, and the, the big three automakers were feeling cocky and not seeing what was coming with Japan. And so all of that and. Another factor was uh, urban renewal, which the blacks in Detroit called Negro removal, sent waves throughout the city uh, of the created problems uh, after that. And so all of that combined together to create this, what would become a very difficult decline. But did the leaders, the city, the, the elders in the city, the people who had captains of industry, did they make mistakes? I mean, there's plenty in your book oh, that points out that, yeah. you know, Henry Ford II was far-sighted in many ways, didn't see Japan coming, but knew that the world markets would be really important, knew still how, knew how to make and market a car. What they didn't see was the fact that the city of Detroit was the beating heart of their industry. And so they they not only abandoned Detroit financially, you know, or economically in terms of moving the factories and all of the uh, ancillary uh, businesses out of the city of Detroit, but they also abandoned it emotionally into the suburbs and and further away. And and so to leave Detroit behind really created long term problems for not just for the city, but but really for the soul of the industry. I would say. So I also note that this is right about the exact fifth anniversary of the idea for the book, and it was sparked by that M&M commercial in the uh, Super Bowl five years ago. This is the Motor City. This is what we do. Do you think that sort of civic boosterism, sure, can only go so far, but you add it all up and you add up the supposed, I've God, I've read 3,000 stories about the uh, revitalization of downtown. I think it's talking about a six-block area. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but, are any, but is any of that adding up to anything tangible? Uh, yeah. I don't disparage the fact that there are good restaurants and people coming back into the city and young people are making it, uh, you know, part of it on the cast corridor, a little bit of a Brooklyn type of thing, you know. And for the first time in many years, the city's population is growing. But, and there's a huge, however, which is that vast swaths of the city are still, you know, deeply in trouble, and and the schools are a mess, and, and you know, the teachers are on strike, and, and there are a lot of people without jobs, and there's, you know, 
I went to the block where uh, we lived on a flat on Dexter Avenue, and they tore down that house uh, a couple of days before I went there. Six out of the ten houses on that block were torn down or, or condemned. So there's huge work to do. That Some of it Detroit can handle, some of it are the, you know, unfortunately seemingly intractable problems of uh, urban America, which, you know, are not being given the priority right now that they need. You hear Republicans talking about we're at a crossroads. This we could either become a country that will have once have been great and lost our greatness, or we could reclaim our greatness. I mean, here you are, you delved into a real place at a crossroads. Does the rhetoric seem far fetched, empty? I'm sure it speaks to an anxiety that we always have. I guess every time is always a crossroads. But what do you think of the crossroads talk of today versus the time period you immersed yourself in? I do think that this election, the 2016 election, in some ways is an argument over uh, what it means to be an American, some looking toward the future and some longing for what I would call the fallacy of an innocent past, you know, make America great again. The anti-government feeling now is 100 times more than it was in that period. Much of the rhetoric about uh, making America great again uh, leaves out past parts of society. I haven't heard a single word in this election from a Republican candidate about the problems of the cities. Well, yeah. Except to demonize them, but not to try to resolve them. I guess New York values comes closest. (laughs) That's that's how they talked about the problems of the cities, bad values. And and on the other side, on the Democratic side, I mean, you wrote about Barack Obama. You covered him and you wrote Mm -hmm. the biography. You know, I think about Kavanaugh and I think about the limits of great intentions, and even really good, well-meaning follow-through. Sometimes history and chance and all that just overwhelms, no matter what's it in your heart. True. It does, and uh, governing is hard. The big question about you know the modern world is whether we're, we're advancing or regressing in so many different ways. You know, and you like to think that, about the ascent of humankind, but sometimes you wonder. Once in a Great City, a Detroit story by David Marinus. Thanks so much. Hey, it was great talking with you. Thank you. And now the spiel, more than a peep. Attention, people of Twitter. The following arrangement is not, repeat not, on offer to any of you. Though there is perhaps a widely shared misimpression that the following is being offered, I would like to repeat that the following is not being offered. That is, you are not being offered $55 million to get spied on naked. Obviously, the wits and wags of America saw that Aaron Andrews was awarded $55 million for being peeped on and decided, yeah, I'm in. I'm in on that deal. A few things about that. One, no one is offering it to you. Two, no one offered it to Erin Andrews. Being peeped on was thrust upon her. In fact, if you agree to have nude photos or videos disseminated of you, then it can't be said that you were photographed without your consent. It's a weird thing about lack of consent. It can only be not okay to take a picture without your consent because the moment it becomes okay, then it's not without your consent. See how that works? Twitter doesn't see that. Also, Aaron Andrews is not going to get $55 million. 
The jury awarded that just about half, a little more than half, of the money should come from the guy who did the spying on her, who did the videotaping. That guy, I was surprised to learn he actually was an executive, but it seems like he's been at least out of work, certainly ruined. We hope ruined since all these charges came to light. So she's not getting any money from him. And then there was the West End Hotel Partners and the Windsor Capital Group. They're the consortium, the two consortiums that own that particular Marriott Hotel. Marriott Corporate is not on the hook. Perhaps she'll get some money after many appeals and probably many years from those two entities. But this whole thing, yeah, I'd be spied on. Photograph me naked for $55 million. I mean, I believe that you would be spied on for $55 million. I've seen your Instagram feed, and it doesn't seem that judgment and modesty are hallmarks of your first-rate mind. But it reminds me of that statement that was often put forth in the 1980s. I get punched in the face by Mike Tyson for $5 million. Again, no one is offering you to punch you in the face. That is not the point. No one wants to see you getting punched in the face by Mike Tyson. We barely wanted to see this guy getting punched in the face. And that is the first time Michael Spinks has ever been down in a professional fight. And while you are down with the $5 million punch in the face from 1988 Mike Tyson. And he's down again and in serious. The pay-per-view haul from at Patriots Benji or at GitterDun69 against 1988 Mike Tyson would barely cover your inevitable cranial surgery. He's not going to make it. It's all over. You know who take $5 million for a punch from 1988 Mike Tyson? 2016 Mike Tyson. But alas, this is just as much in the realm of the hypothetical as all those other lucrative offers we've been talking about. So sorry, people of the internet. Now please go back to envying Aaron Andrews for hauling in a hypothetical $55 million by not giving consent, while at the same time condemning Kim Kardashian for being the author of her own payday, which Forbes estimated last year to be $52.5 million. And that is actual money for which she was actually paid. That's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi has said she'd agree to having hot McDonald's coffee spilled on her for $10 million as long as she was wearing her Grimace outfit at the time. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, would take $6 million to have the wrong leg amputated so long as that leg belonged to... Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The gist, we take $4 billion to allow BP to pollute our waters, but our waters are not that rich in shrimp. Mpru de Peru du Peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>